This is Lou Augusta. Welcome to A Rumor of Empathy. Today's podcast is entitled Galileo's Middle Finger. It is a rebroadcast of a conversation with Alice Dreger, Professor of Medical Humanities at the Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine, originally recorded in April 2015. In Professor Dreger's book, Galileo's Middle Finger, Heretics, Activists, and One Scientist's Search for Justice, Professor Dreger alludes to the fact that it has been over 350 years since a scientist was burned at the stake, and even then it was Giordano Bruno, not Galileo. In advocating and going to bat for people who survived sexual reassignment surgery as infants due to a condition called intersex or hemaphroditism, Dreger speaks truth to transgender power and power talks back, making her a strong candidate to be burned, if not at the stake, at least symbolically in effigy. Given the transgender dynamics, politics, identity, and social debates in the news, this conversation is even more timely today than it was a few years ago. Empathy is no rumor in the contribution of Alice Dreger. Empathy lives in her work. Welcome to the show. Now, here is Lou Augusta. Hi, this is Lou Augustin. Welcome to the show, A Rumor of Empathy. My special guest today is Alice Dreger, author, Galileo's Middle Finger, Heretics, Activists, and the Search for Justice in Science. Now, this is a, a book which is a, really a bit of a page turner. I'm going to give Alice, she's actually Madam Professor Doctor, but we're going to be on a first name basis on the show. I'm going to give her a formal introduction and then we're going to get right into it. Alice Dreger is a professor of clinical medical humanities and bioethics at Northwestern University's Feinberg School of Medicine and the author of Hemaphrodites and the Medical Invention of Sex and One of Us, Conjoined Twins and the Future of Normal. Her work has been discussed in the New York Times, The New Yorker, Science, CNN, and now on Voice America Empowerment, A Rumor of Empathy. I'm going to read you a short quote from the New York Times Sunday Book Review dated April 17, 2015 by David Dobbs. This is a great quote, quoting Professor Dreger Alice from her book. This, so this is her voice, her speaking. Soon enough, Alice Dreger writes at the beginning of her romp of a book, I will get to the death threats, the sex charges, the alleged genocides, the epidemics, the alien abductees, the anti-lesbian drug, the unethical ethicists, the fight with Martina Navratilova, and of course, Galileo's middle finger. But first, I have to tell you a little bit how I got into this mess. Welcome to the show, Alice. How did you get into this mess? Thanks for having me, Lou. Well, uh, <laughs> depends where you want to start a story, right? I'm a historian, so I never know where a story is supposed to start. 
Um, the book is about sort of the battles that are occurring between scientists and activists over issues of human identity. So the way I got into this book in particular was that I had come out of years of doing activist work on behalf of intersex people. That's people with body types that are not standard male or standard female, but are something in between or have blends of characteristics of sex types. And as I was coming out of that work, I started uh, looking into a controversy over transgender, which is when you feel the gender assignment given to you at birth is not the correct one. So you were assigned a boy, but feel you're a female or vice versa. Yes. And um, I looked into a controversy over transgender, and I thought it was going to be sort of a he said, she said controversy between the scientists and some activists. But it turns out that the activists had sort of framed the scientist because of the feeling that they wanted to reject his ideas. So when I published that work, they came after me, and that was a new new experience for me because I had not been the subject of activist attacks before. And so I set out um, on a multi-year journey to sort of try to understand these battles and to try to understand how we take care of each other. So let me get the context of this. You're, uh, according to the uh, account you shared with me offline, you're writing a dissertation uh, in history on the history of medicine, and your dissertation advisor directs you in the direction of this phenomenon of people who are hemaphrodites and have what we might clinic, we're grown-ups on this conversation, we're going to be clinical and descriptive, uh, sex organs, genitals, which are ambiguous as to whether they're completely male or completely female. And then you picked up, you were uh, not married at that time, but eventually I believe you do marry the person you were living with who was studying to be a doctor, and you look at his medical textbooks. Right. And, yes. what, and you found something I don't I'm going to put I don't want to put words in your mouth, <laughs> but, you know, it was an eye opening event for you in some ways. What what can you say more about that? What happened? Sure. So um, hermaphroditism is the term that was used in the 19th century medical literature. And that's the period that I was studying today. We call this intersex. And it doesn't have to be people with ambiguous genitalia. That's one way to have these conditions. But you can also have a sort of sex type where you have the sex of one on the outside, but the sex of the, the opposite sex on the inside. So you can have a masculine outside, but internally have female organs, or you can have a yes, female yes, I see. and have reversed. And so um, when I started publishing my work on what had happened in the 1800s, people with, born with these various kinds of conditions started contacting me and asking me to change the current medical system. So I looked at my partner's medical books, which he was in his third year or fourth year of medical school, so it was pretty easy to do so. And what it said was that if a girl was born with a large clitoris, she might end up growing up to be a lesbian, so you had to cut off part of her clitoris to make sure that didn't happen, which shocked me. And this Well, let, I mean, we pose for a moment of shock and dismay, right? I mean, what, what sure. mentality are we this, – this is meant ironically and sarcastically, of course – you know, I mean, this is like a 1950s mentality, if one may say. It was very much a 1950s mentality, yeah. but it was a 1994 or 5 textbook, so that was very shocking to me. And then it also said that if a boy had a condition called hypospadias, which is when the urinary opening isn't on the um, end of the penis, but is sort of on the underside of the penis, that he wouldn't be able to write his name in the snow next to other little boys. His textbook actually said that. Full stop. Said, You're full stop. <laughs> Wait a minute. Let me get this straight. Go yeah, ahead. <laughs> it said that the boy would grow up to be gay and so that you would have to uh, do a surgery to change where his urinary opening was. 
Mm. And I, I was, I mean, I was quite stunned. I found this kind of ridiculous, as did my partner. And so I joined the intersex rights movement thinking it would only take about six months, maybe 12 months, because I thought, well, this is so outdated. All the doctors will understand how crazy this is, that this is an outdated understanding of sexuality and of gender. And they were also advocating not telling patients the truth because of mm. the idea that you couldn't tell them what had happened to them. And there were so well, many people who had I, I want to interrupt so you here. Can I interrupt you here? I mean, sure. and just be sort of uncertain because you have a wealth of material here. I mean, and it is so confronting and challenging and almost how common are these conditions? Is this very rare? Is this I mean, there's a whole set of conditions you described the boy not being able to write his, you know, urinate into the snow, but rather having the opening uh, underneath the penis, which results in having to urinate if I may say so, just directly sitting down. This is some kind of a scandal to somebody, but perhaps less so to, you know, I mean, and trying to fix this problem rarely works, according well, it, it, to the what you've learned. Yeah. The doctors don't say it rarely works. They say it works most of the time, and that uh -huh. most of the time people are fine. Um, I happen to think people should be allowed to have their genitals left intact unless there's a medical emergency. Uh, but with regard well, hold to the, the thought, maybe that hold the thought, Alice. That's a takeaway here, right? I mean, this is holding, keeping one's genitals intact absent a medical emergency. You, are you telling me? I'm going to play. You know, I don't know. Be a little simple-minded here. Are you telling me that's not the conventional wisdom in the medical community in the 1990s? And you know, fast forward today. I mean, your work has made a difference. But what what is the status of this approach? Well, the general attitude is that children with any kind of genital ambiguity are at risk for psychosocial problems, although the evidence doesn't suggest that that's true, and that you have to make them all look typically male or typically female as babies, or they will end up with a psychological disaster, which, again, we don't have evidence which that that's we, true. Yeah, so there's a psychosocial dimension, and then there's a physical medical dimension. And uh, my takeaway from your book, now this is Lou Augusta, not uh, Alice Dreger, my takeaway is that this is hopelessly mixed up. And the, well, I would certainly like them to have more evidence for necessity and safety and efficacy and to be talking with parents about that, which is happening more. Although they talk about safety and efficacy, they don't talk about lack of necessity often enough. But you had a question about frequency. Did you want me to answer that question? Would you be so kind? I jump around so, a little bit. Forgive me. I mean, so um, how frequent these conditions are depends on what you're going to count as normal male or normal female because we're counting everything that's not. And so it's difficult to say what you're going to count in the categories of normal because you have to decide how much does the urinary opening have to be off before you decide it's abnormal, how big does a clitoris have to be before you decide that's abnormal. But if you take the number of children that are born with some sort of notable ambiguity um, and such that the sex is very unclear and a specialist team is called in, that would be about 1 in 2,000 babies. Mm -hmm. And if you add up all of the different ways you can have sex anomalies, it comes out to about 1 in 100, although some of those you'd never know um, because, because they're quite yeah. unless, unless something unusual happened. But if you're talking about something like hypospadias, which is where the urinary opening is not on the end of the penis but is on the underside, that's estimated currently to occur in the United States between 1 in 150 and two, 1 in 250 live male births. So, well, and isn't that interesting? I mean, I want to pause for breath here, at the, at the, if I may, uh, because, you know, some of the conditions are very rare. And, but when you add them all together, you're saying 1 in 100, 1 in 200. So maybe it's less rare than one might 
at first blush, a citizen such as myself who's not familiar with the technicalities and complexities, you know, one might think it's, it's more common. So we might know people. Yes, you would certainly know people. Um, and sex is actually very complicated, which is why the number is so high. We, people tend to think that sex divides simply into two types. And I used to think that, that there's the XX type, which gets you female, and the XY type, which gets you male. But in fact, you can have lots of variations on XX people and lots of variations on XY. And then there are people with XXY in their chromosomes or a blend of XX and XY. So there's lots of different ways you can have the chromosomes. And the chromosomes aren't really what matters. What matters is the genes, and that includes genes on other chromosomes. So, And it also includes environmental conditions. So sex is incredibly complicated, and that's why you can have so many variations of sex. It's hugely, hugely complicated. Well, I want to pause for a moment's thought here as well, because as part of your work and as part of your advocacy, there was a moment at which individuals, and you know, we want to respect confidentiality and not put anything on internet talk radio that shouldn't be confidential, but you uh, ended up hearing from people who, as infants, had their sexual assignment changed. Uh, for I'll give you an example, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. A boy is born with a what somebody defines as a very small penis, right? Less than, there, you have the penis meter. Uh, and this is, I'm not making this up. And he is, then surgery is performed and he is sexually reassigned to the female gender. And his parents are counseled in a certain way, in some cases, not to tell him, not to disclose this. He gets to pu- puberty. Some things are perhaps going not as planned. Can you fill in the blanks here? What's going on? And some of these people reached out to you, and you did work on their behalf. Can you right. say well, there about was a, There was an yeah. organized activist movement that I joined, so they were already organized. Okay. Movement. Um, I, didn't, I didn't start that movement by any means, and they've continued that movement very powerfully. Right. So uh, it's actually the tool you're referring to is an activist tool called a phallometer, and we created it to sort of get in your face. It's not actually something they use in medicine. <laughs> okay. they, they do use a measuring tool in medicine, and the medical system has determined that, uh, well, historically, until very recently, the attitude was that if a boy was born with a penile stretched length of less than uh, one inch stretched at birth, that that person counted as having what was called micropenis, and they would sex change that child into a girl because of the belief that you can't have a small penis and be a real man. That's That part of it has largely changed in the last 10 years. Those kids now are subject to different kinds of medical interventions to try to get their penises to grow bigger, which are also problematic medical interventions. But um, it is still the case that girls born with enlarged clitorises are constantly sent into surgery. Boys born with any kind of hypospadias are sent into surgery. And children with all sorts of other anomalies are sent into surgery, often not because there is a medical situation. In some cases, there are legitimate medical concerns. But most of these cases, it's done because of the attitude that in order for these children to grow up healthy, they have to be fixed. Well, we're going to actually have a a sponsorship break in about two minutes. But you mentioned uh, surgery on the clitoris. And I know I read articles on about the... uh, benighted and darkened medieval practices that go on in parts of sub-Sahara Africa 
uh, for some reason, I hope the people who live in Sudan, Sudan will forgive me, but that name comes up and occurs to me, where there is uh, now described as genital mutilation of women and the consequences of that. This is somewhat shocking. I mean, this is, seems to be a medicalized version of that now. Obviously, there are a number of conditions and qualifications, and if it's medically necessary, then you got to call in the surgeons. But how much of, you know, it's not an easy answer, right? I mean, a bold statement of the obvious uh how what you know it seems to me problematic can you help me well i think those of us in the west are apt to call that female genital mutilation that's not how the people in those cultures describe it they describe it as female circumcision or cutting and i think part of what's going on here is the assumption that those people are barbaric and we are not um and so i'm quite concerned that um you know we we do the same well, not the same sorts of cutting because there are different sorts of cutting and done under unsterile circumstances. Here it's all done very sterile and billed to insurance. Yes, yes, but it's yes. just cutting done for the sake of the idea that in order to culturally accept a child, they have to be changed. And I think that's, that's just not borne out by the evidence. You don't have to change children. You can raise them as boys or girls based on best guess gender assignment, which is what we do for all children. We guess as best we can what gender they're going to end up. And you can do that without reinforcing it with surgery and let the child decide for themselves whether or not they want to take the risks associated with surgery when they're old enough to make that decision. Well, I think that's a powerful and an important point. And uh, we want to hold that thought because, as I say, we're going to actually have a sponsorship break at this point. I am speaking with Alice Dreger, author, Galileo's Middle Finger, Heretics, Activists, and the search for justice in science. We will be right back. Now, back to the program. Hi, this is Lou Augusta. Welcome back to the show, A Rumor of Empathy. Today, I'm talking with Alice Dreger, author, Galileo's Middle Finger, Heretics, Activists, and the Search for Justice in Science. In the course of her research, uh, Dreger was marshalling evidence that people whose genitals are not surgically transformed as infants, who have, but they have been born with non-standard but otherwise healthy functioning sex organs, these folks are no worse off, they are not worse off than those genitals, uh, those people whose genitals were modified. And in many cases, they do as well, they flourish, they're happy, whereas folks who have had, for one reason or another, undergone surgery, find that they're conflicted, they're dealing with issues around their sexuality, which maybe they didn't have to deal with. Alice, can you help me uh, pick up the thread at this point and uh, lessons learned from this difficult, fraught matter? Well, I think, first of all, we can't make it that simple because we don't have the data to tell us how everybody ended up. What we have is a, t a ton of anecdotes, and anecdotes are not the same as data. So the doctors say that the children who have been subject to surgeries are doing, for the most part, fine. The activists say that people subject to surgeries are the most part harmed. And what they both have is anecdotes. They don't have good yeah. long-term data. So I would really like to know. But even if we knew, we'd have to ask ourselves the question whether or not it would make sense to take this risk on behalf of somebody else. 
And it doesn't make a lot of sense to me that you're going to take the risk about somebody's genitals without engaging with them with the question of whether or not they want to be the person to do that, because it seems to me respectful of the individual. And that's actually where it's going now, certainly in Europe, in terms of the United Nations Special Rapporteur on Torture, the um, Swiss Bioethics Commission. There's been a lot of European decisions coming down the pike saying that the right to genital integrity is the right of a child and the right of an adult, and that they should have the right to decide whether or not elective surgeries are done on their genitals. So I think that Europe will probably change before the United States, but that that's the direction we're going in is an idea that we don't have to do these enforcing surgeries for the sake of the culture, nor do we have to do them for the sake of the child if what we decide is that, in fact, people who have atypical sex forms are socially acceptable um, and can make that decision for themselves. Well, you, you know, know the, yeah, go ahead. Out, the parents and the doctors doing this, they're not doing it because they, they're evil or they dislike children. They're doing it because they love these kids. They're doing it because of the genuine belief that this is what you have to do in order to raise these children successfully. The problem is that the, the data suggests to us that that's a weak argument, that it could be a dangerous argument. And the ethics of it are very problematic because I think you have to have a good reason to intervene on somebody else's body for an elective reason when you're doing it without their participation. Hmm. Well, I want to call out that I am uh, marshalling anecdotal evidence, and here you have another anecdote. Lou Augusta has read a book and had his eyes opened <laughs> in certain ways, right? So call that out. I mean, full disclosure, you are a stand, if I am any judge in the matter, you are a stand for looking at the facts, looking at the evidence you have now. You know, so you're calling for formal studies. Why are why are medical doctors, surgeons not doing follow ups five years later? You know, they talk very briefly and say, "Hey, you know, the guy seems pretty happy, or the the woman seems happy, whichever." And so you're a stand for like gathering evidence. And meanwhile, however, you've talked with a lot of people who have dealt with issues around their sexuality and the surgical transformation and the, you know, the biological, medical, medicine, hormones and everything transformation of sexuality. So I think that you're, you know, if I may say so, yes, at some level it's an opinion, but you have some standing in the matter and I want to call that out. Sure. And, and I think it's really important that we listen to adults who have been through these systems and take seriously what they've been through. And I have a very difficult time finding anybody. I mean, I've, even after 20 years, I have yet to meet somebody who went through this system and thinks that what happened to them was okay. Some of them may have had surgeries that they feel fine with, but if they are, they're not speaking up at all. And I think many of them, in fact, were misled with regard to what happened to them. So they don't even know still. I, I'm still finding people who will say to me, you know, I had some kind of surgery. They told me it was for a hernia, but my mother is hinting or my father is hinting that it was something more complicated. And then they get their medical records and they find out that it was some kind of intersex surgery. So it's certainly the case that people are still having their medical histories withheld from them. And it doesn't seem to me you can claim that the outcome was good if somebody was lied to. Roger that. And, you know, I know when we first met, the thing that inserted a hook in my psyche, soul, and in my heart, is that you worked with some of these people and, in effect, chased down uh, their medical records and worked with them, you know, keeping all of this as confidential as regards specific individual. But this person didn't know the story of what had been done to them. And in the process of doing, in effect, pro bono work on your behalf with this individual, they got a narrative of who they were. 
I was moved and inspired by that. Yeah, it, it bothered me a lot that I was meeting people whose medical histories were sort of unclear to them. And so I've, I've worked with a number of people who have been through traumatic medical systems um, to try to help them just understand what exactly happened to them. You know, the medical system is very uh, brutalizing, and it leaves a lot of people, even, even folks who survive things thanks to physicians, often are left with a kind of trauma afterwards that gets unprocessed. And I think a lot of the time they need some help sort of understanding what happened. And history is a very useful thing because it allows people to turn an experience into a narrative. And we find that when people turn things into narratives that they are often more manageable psychologically. So I, I try to help people out to some extent with that. But I think we underestimate just how brutalizing the medical systems are. And again, it's not because the healthcare providers aren't good people trying to do good work. They really are. Absolutely. The, the systems are set up can be very difficult. So even folks who I've met who have survived cancers, for example, and are actually yeah. cured, often find that a part of them has really been damaged, in a, a psychological part has really been damaged in the process, and they need to integrate that into their own narrative in order to sort of move along and get past the trauma. Well, you know, that's an interesting point, and I want to take a moment. I mean, I don't want to lay it on too thick, but if not now, when? I acknowledge your commitment and your dedication as a historian. And, you know, sometimes it's not easy to be acknowledged. So just be with it and, you know, go with the well, flow, if you. you will. I appreciate that. It's, I yeah. mean, that, you know, the work has been so incredibly meaningful to me that it's uh, nobody has to say thank you to me for it. I feel the opposite. Yeah. When, when folks let me help, I feel very grateful to them for letting me well, help. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the thought that I'm having, I mean, my association is, what the work you're doing, of course, is as an historian, you collect documents, this is your picture in some medical journal, and even though your head has been uh, removed photographically or your eyes blanked out in a kind of dehumanizing way, you recognize, one recognizes oneself because of the necklace or the bracelet or some other, you know, defining birthmark or something, and that can be itself, as you say, emotionally, psychologically trauma, and, and de- whereas uh, um, what was it? complete the thought, Lou? Uh, the the point is here that you've you've done the research and documentation of a historian, and it reminds me of the work of a psychotherapist. You say, yeah. I mean, I, I try to make sure that the people I'm working with are working with a therapist because that's not really my job. My job is to just help them put together the history. But I, I do think that we underestimate the degree to which stories and story formation and disrupted stories are really critical within the medical realm. And I think that's part of why people do get damaged by learning too late about their own medical histories, because they've already developed a sense of self. And now knowledge comes down the pike, either fragmented or whole, and it really disrupts the sense of self. And that, that's, that's very, very difficult for people. And it's not... It's not a good system. It's the same reason why now in adoptions we try to encourage people to make sure that children who are adopted know that they're adopted so that that's part of their sense of self as they grow. We try to make sure that children who have serious medical conditions like those who are born with HIV and those who are, have cancers are aware of what's going on with them so that they can integrate that into their sense of selves. It's, it's, very, it's very disconcerting if what happens to you is... You have a sense of self, and then somebody comes along and says, you have a major part of that wrong. That's yeah. not a good scene. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm just interjecting that uh, agreement. And you mentioned integration. I think that's a key term here, that in, in crafting the story and in, in saying what happened, or to the best of our ability as uh, getting at the past, 
one integrates the experience and that expands the individual sense of being whole and complete as opposed to being fragmented and not knowing where I'm coming from or going to. Right, absolutely. And so we do actually believe, this is back to the, fa- to the fact, or if you will, the position that we believe there is such a thing as facts and evidence. And marshalling them can't be a bad thing. But wait, sometimes the story's not as simple as a soundbite, right? I mean, complex scientific evidence is nuanced. It is by, I said complex, that's the key term here. But in terms of advocacy, what one wants is something that plays well in the press. That is true, although I would also say that activists often find the media as well tends to oversimplify their experiences and their identities. So I think this is a problem for people on all sides. And... Um, it certainly is important for folks working on any human identity issue to try to make sure that they they do have some sense of subtlety going on and some uh, ability to understand that people's stories vary from the average. Well, I want to acknowledge that I'm at risk of doing that here, right? Because we have basically an hour-long talk show and with uh, sponsorship breaks and technology issues, uh, uh, you know, the time is limited and one wants to make an important point about work that deserves to be followed up on. And it is, you know, I think there is, there's lessons for science as well as for the media here. There's a a great deal of responsibility on the part of the media. I'm not exactly sure where we want to go with that except to say, you know, I had, I'm, I'm going to actually get on the soapbox and allow myself a, a, a minute. I had a teacher many years ago, the name of Hannah Arendt, and she said one thing, uh, the facts can be fragile. The facts are fragile. If Stalin had succeeded in wiping out, he killed uh, Leon Trotsky, the architect of the revolution. This is uh, related to Galileo and the middle finger, although it came a few centuries later. Uh, And he tried to wipe out every evidence of the existence of Trotsky. Had he succeeded, we would have no idea who this person was. Mm -hmm. And in the case of Galileo, and in your book, I should say, you know, full disclosure, uh, it is inspired by Galileo. It's not about the 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 story of Galileo himself, who, uh, you know, finally, I I had to look this up prior to the show, but uh, the Vatican apologized to Galileo for uh, threatening him and putting him under house arrest for saying that the earth went around the sun. The Vatican finally got around to apologizing on October 31st, 1992, some 350 years later. And I guess we could say, uh, you know, it's been over 300 years since a scientist has been burned at the stake. But that's no reason for complacency. Galileo was not burned at the stake. He was put under house arrest and died in in trouble. But uh, the person people often mistake him for is Giordano Bruno, who was also... A person who was interested in the heavens and the circulatory system in terms of the whether, well, not the circulatory system, I mean, in terms of the Copernican system versus other systems, which planets went around what, would the, the sun go around, and Bruno was actually burned at the stake um, for uh, being a heretic. Galileo, however, was not. Galileo knew Bruno had been, and he was scared, legitimately scared, but that didn't happen to him. Right, I've got that, and but nevertheless, I'm sticking to my story. No scientist, whether Galileo or, or Giordano Bruno, um, actually, I think Bruno was the last one. But we haven't burned anybody at the stake recently, and uh, I'm being bad here, and this is <laughs> and provocative, uh, and uh, nevertheless, uh, um, so. Um, 
And so uh, you find that this is a recurring theme. Now, it happens to you. you. You surface some facts that are not really convenient to some of the social justice advocates who were previously your friends. And you're called out. You're, uh, in effect, attacked. Uh, most of the attacks, as I read them, are pretty thin and themselves questionable. Uh, you really suffer. I, I must say, it was I was getting paranoid reading parts of these books with the way the internet can be misused to attack one's character. And uh, and how did you survive this? I mean, what what you know? Any tips and techniques for those who wish to speak truth to power, as you have done so? Well, I mean, the the book shows it can be quite difficult to try to deal with that. And uh, I guess. One thing I would say is good friends, good lawyers, and persistence. Is uh, well, <laughs> send, I mean, isn't there a rock and roll song? Uh, send money, guns, and lawyers. lawyers Something yes. has hit the fan. I guess we'll put yes. that on the air. Well, okay, so that's, you know, I, I'm okay with two out of three, you know. <laughs> friends. Well, it it can be friends. quite difficult to, to yeah. deal with this stuff. And, I, you know, part of what I'm asking in the book is for people to try to understand stories in more depth and try to avoid a situation where what's really going on that I see a lot is oversimplification of stories and the assumption that the other side is evil. When, in fact, often if you dig into it and start to understand the other side, you understand that they're legitimately scared and legitimately worried about what's going on in terms of the way they're being treated. Yes. Well, we're up against... Uh a time for a sponsorship break. Remember, no money, no mission. So we are talking with Alice Dreger, author, Galileo's Middle Finger, Heretics, Activists, and the Search for Social Justice in Science. We'll be right back. Now, back to the program. Welcome back to the show. This is Lou Augusta with A Rumor of Empathy. My special guest today, Alice Dreger, Professor of Clinical Medicine, Medical Humanities, and Bioethics at Northwestern University's Feinberg School of Medicine and the author of Galileo's Middle Finger. We're mixing it up. Uh, Alice is a prolific author, a bold statement of the obvious. I also have in front of me a provocative, engaging, eye-opening book entitled One of Us, Conjoined Twins and the Future of Normal. So what used to be described, I think with a fair amount of respect, as Siamese twins has been renamed as Conjoined Twins, where the twins share body parts, in effect, uh, and are born viable, sometimes not, right? There's a, once again, so I'm going to uh, actually uh, ask a question at this point. Uh, uh, can we define our terms? So uh, let's define our terms and talk about life as a conjoined twin. Well, there are many different ways to have conjoined twinning, and so sometimes the twin doesn't fully develop. You'll just get an extra arm or an extra leg or in some cool cases an extra penis <laughs> i see <laughs> sometimes people have that that kind of thing happening those are called in the medical literature parasitic twins although they don't, they're not really parasites but they don't fully develop but the conjoined twinning most people are familiar with is a different type uh, which is called uh, something else in the medical literature and that's when a person to what happens is an embryo 
begins to form and starts to split. And if it splits completely, you'll get identical twins. But if it splits incompletely, you can have conjoined twins, some of which will not survive the uh, development because they just don't develop correctly. But some of whom do, and they are born as conjoined twins and grow up as conjoined twins. And the tendency in certainly the Western world is to try to separate conjoined twins as much as possible, even when they're very high-risk separations. But historically speaking, because separations were not really safe until, in most cases, until relatively recently, conjoined twins tended to grow up conjoined. And when I set out to do work trying to figure out what had happened to them, I assumed that this was a condition that nobody could stand, nobody would be able to live this way, because I wasn't born that way, and I assumed that it would be miserable and awful. But I was really surprised to learn when I looked at the history of conjoined twinning that conjoined twins describe their lives as perfectly worthwhile, uh, acceptable, and in most cases, they describe themselves as superior to the rest of us because they had a second person with them all the time. So that very much surprised me, although if you think about it, it makes sense. Most of us come to accept and see as very good the bodies that we were born into. I mean, we may think we're too fat or we're too skinny and our you know skin doesn't look quite right or all the rest of that, but for the most part, most of us don't find that our bodies are a problem in terms of how we see ourselves. And that's true with conjoined twins, too. There's only been one conjoined twin pair in history to elect separation for themselves. That was the Bajani twins in 2004. They elected um, to be separated. Uh, the, the guy running for president on the Republican line, Ben Carson, was one of the surgeons involved in that very problematic case. And they both died on the operating table. Isn't that something? So in let, let me make sure I got this straight. In the history of conjoined twins who got to the age, if you will, of making their own decisions, if you will, the age of reason, there has been one pair who elected to try this oftentimes heroic, uh, wrong word, but I use it nonetheless, this really complex, messy matter of surgery in in separating the twins. And as I gather from reading your text, One of Us, uh, it was hard to find a surgical team that would undertake this uh, in enterprise. Why do, say something about that, because that in itself was eye-opening. The surgery well, uh, is expensive. Uh, t tell me about that. It was hard to find a surgical team to separate the Bajani twins because all the other surgical teams said they would die, which is exactly what happened. And yeah. so you have to raise some questions about why the team in Singapore thought otherwise, when in fact that's exactly what happened. They died from the surgery. Um, in, there are a few types of conjoined twinning that are simple and relatively easy to separate, but they're, they're not the majority of cases. So ironically, the term Siamese twins comes from a pair of twins that today would be very easy to separate. That was Chang and Ang Bunker, who lived in the 1800s, uh, were born in what we now call Thailand. At the time, it was called Siam, and that's why they were called the Siamese twins, although that's yes. that their families were Chinese, so it's, it's a complex ethnic history. But uh, they ended up coming to the United States. They traveled the world and ended up in the United States, and they were joined actually just by a little bit of liver and a little bit of skin, and today it would be actually quite simple to separate them. It would be practically outpatient surgery. It's, it would be so simple. So it's kind of funny that that's where we get that term from since today they wouldn't even remain conjoined. And I don't have a problem, I should say, with that kind of separation. I think that we have reason to believe if you, if you separate babies, their lives will be simpler, better. Um, but that's, in many cases, that's not the case. It's not a simple separation. It's a complex separation. And in a large number of cases being done today, it often leaves them with a tremendous amount of risk and sometimes a lot of harm. 
So Isn't that something? I mean, it puts me in mind, do no harm, right? I'm looking at page 39 of One of Us, and there's a picture of the uh, Chang and Ang bunker engaged in various pursuits, farming, fishing, boating, spending time with their families. They each had uh, a large number of children shown in, as I'm quoting here, in a mid-19th century lithograph by Courier and Ives. Now, there's a <laughs> storied name, isn't it? And they're riding in their boat and riding in their carriage. And they lived in, for a while, if I'm not mistaken, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, a pre-Civil War South. And they actually owned slaves. Uh, they, they, they were, uh, they married, one of them married, if I'm not mistaken, the preacher's daughter. And then the other one married uh, the preacher's daughter's sister. So, um, you know, the, the you know so full disclosure I mean I'll just handle this right up front uh, the question is what was having uh, adult sexual relations like and you I'm gonna answer for you at this point basically it seems like the other twin sort of went into a mildly um, non-present state you might say well, a mild I mean they didn't they didn't talk about what they did uh, yeah. But we a mild know, trance, I'm, I want to say, just to complete the thought. We don't know. I mean, they, yeah. they okay. according to them, they had a perfect, perfectly reasonable marriages. They did, in fact, marry sisters. Um, they ended up having quite a lot of children. So one side of the family had 10 children. The other side of the family had 11. And I've been to the family reunions because they left behind so many descendants. Um, You've been to the family reunions. So a big yes. shout out to the, to the folks, huh? Yeah, the Bunker family is a very uh, warm and loving family that has an annual reunion every year and has been very nice about inviting me to come. I ended up meeting one of the descendants because she, she was in touch with me about her family's experience. And, you know, what's interesting about that story is that when they were looking to get married to those the, the women they wanted to marry, the objection on the part of the father was not that they were conjoined because he knew these men well. They lived in the village. They all lived together. They all knew each other from the village. These were considered very upstanding Christian men. They had converted to Christianity. They were uh, good farmers. They had money. So the father had no objections based on all that. The father's objection was that they were Asian. Yes. This was South pre-Civil War. And it was probably one, probably the first family in America to have a legitimate uh Chinese European wedding uh, marriage, I should say, and but the father was very upset about the race issue. He wasn't upset about upset about the conjoined twinning, and that's consistent with what I find with regard to other conjoined people, is that the people who know them get over the fact that they're conjoined. They don't see it as a big deal. They just don't. They, it's not a big deal to them. It's like anything else. You know, I have friends who have dwarfism. I have friends who have lip anomalies or missing limbs. Whatever it is, you get over it after a few visits, and you stop noticing it. And that occurs with conjoined twins. But the father was facing a situation where, socially speaking, race was a very big issue. And having interracial children was a huge issue. So that caused a lot of stigma and a lot of stress for the families. Well, the thing I want to call out in the work you are, you are doing and in what you just said is the humanity. You get in, in, in case after case after case, there's some physical something that's not standard. Another way of saying that, I, I'm not going to use the word normal because if we knew what that was, that would be like a Nobel Prize, right? We struggle with that. But in every case, you get at the humanity that these were good, upstanding farmers. They were members of the community. I mean, in other cases of people of short, 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 extremely short stature of sex organs, genitals that don't fit some standard. The, the, in every case, 
we relate. The, the imp- commitment is to find there's a human being there. So, I mean, you know, bold statement of the obvious. Uh, I'm, uh, and I, and to, to bring out the humanity, and that's what touched and inspired me about okay. all of these narratives. Right, yeah. I and, appreciate that. I mean, I, you know, that is what I try to do. And that's, that's the takeaway for our listeners as well. I might have, because I was somewhat provocative. And, you know, people do. I think it's, you're allowed, we're allowed to be curious about sex. Hello, that's the way we're made, right? But we're going to be grown up and even clinical is necessary. But in, in every case... You know, I'm repeating myself, but I, it, it happens once in a while. Uh, you, you call out what makes us all belong to the same community. And that's also, if I may say so, this is a show about empathy here. You know, we haven't used the word. We don't need to. But it's there. Well, that is what I'm trying to do is just try to take people seriously and try to listen to what they're actually saying instead of what everybody gets as the usual narrative. Because I think once you start listening to people, often their stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than all the standard stories, but uh, it's difficult to get out of that stuff. People are very comfortable in their standard stories of gender and their standard stories of race and their standard stories of everything else. And so I think they have a hard time believing it when people say, when parents say, it's not a big deal for me to have a kid who is X, Y, or Z because that's just how my kid is and the kid says I'm fine. I think a lot of people on the outside have a hard time imagining, well, I could never have a child with autism or I could never have a child with you know, a missing limb, or I could never bear to have a child who looked different from other people in terms of their genitals. But in fact, I think a lot of people find out that being human is being human and that the shapes don't matter so much. That what Dr. King taught us was true, which is, you know, we should judge each other by the content of our character, not by the the color of our skin or the shape of our skin or how many fingers we have. Uh, Amen to that and roger that. I mean, that is such a powerful message. And I must say, I am choking on standard stories. We as a society, you know, here's the soapbox moment. Allow me to take it. As a community, we are choking on these standard stories. I mean, and we, you know, it may be that we will never be able entirely to give them up because that's just the way we human beings, this wounded animal that we human beings are designed to, to, to invent standard stories. But what we want to do is distinguish them, distinguish right. them and call them out and put them in their place. That's not who we authentically are as a community, as all of these distinctions. You know, that's kind of why I was inspired. Now, we actually are coming up on uh, you're having to leave before the end of the show for a variety of reasons because of your commitment. By my clock, you have a couple of minutes left, but I want to be sensitive to your time and get you on your way as you need to go, and then I may have a couple of minutes to recap and uh, tell the listening audience about the exciting next show that we have in line. Any final thoughts to share in the, the last two minutes that you have before I uh, see you out, so to speak? <laughs> well, no, I've really appreciated you giving me the time to talk about these books. I think uh, you know they've both been very highly reviewed, and um, I worked hard on them, so I appreciate the opportunity to talk about them. I, I think... A lot of people are finding with the new book, Galileo's Middle Finger, that there's a lot in there to think about, but that it resonates with a lot of folks in terms of really trying to think about getting past the idea that we have to be at war with each other or that a certain group gets to say what's true or untrue and that we've got to work at it a lot more. So um, thank you for the opportunity. I really appreciate it, Lou. You're welcome. And, you know, as as I talk you out, you can just 
you know, we'll meet again and we'll debrief and we'll follow up. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, so thank you so much, Alice. Have a great okay. day. The rumor of empathy. Don't hang up. The listening audience, don't hang up. The rumor of empathy is no rumor. Alice, empathy lives in the work Alice Dreger is doing and the work of her colleagues as well. And so I strongly recommend Galileo's middle finger. There's really a hundred and one things to talk about here. Uh, I'm not sure that, that there's any ultimate final takeaway except that we are all human beings. That's what inspired me about Professor Dreger's work, that she finds the humanity in all of these so-called non-standard situations and says, hey, maybe this is what a human being should be, can be, what is possible for a human being. Thank you for tuning in to A Rumor of Empathy with Lou Augusta. 